0: Hey guys, Ryan here. If you listen to the podcast on Apple, there's a very simple way for you to help out the show. Just click the Apple Premium Subscriber button at the top of the feed, and you'll instantly become a premium member, where you get all the same rewards as our Patreon members do. Early access to all main episodes and bonus episodes and content. Join our Apple Premium subscription today, and thank you for your support. J. Allen Hynek, the famous astronomer who worked for Project Blue Book, created a system of classification when it came to UFO close encounters. They were broken down into three main categories. Close encounters of the first kind. Visual sightings of an unidentified flying object less than 500 feet away that show an appreciable angular extension and considerable detail. Close encounters of the second kind, a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic devices, animals reacting, a physiological effect such as paralysis or heat and discomfort in the witness, or some physical traces like impressions in the ground, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation, or a chemical trace. And finally, most widely known, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. These are UFO encounters in which an animated entity is present. These include humanoids, robots, and humans who seem to be occupants or pilots of a UFO. Hynek's scale became well known after an up-and-coming filmmaker in Hollywood had read Hynek's work and reached out to him to discuss the third kind category and eventually name his 1977 film after it.
2: For me, it was about research, reading books on the matter, and eventually meeting my breakthrough partner. When I say breakthrough partner, he didn't write the screenplay with me, but he inspired the title, and that's J. Allen Hynek, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was the Project Blue Book debunker working for the military as a civilian consultant, going around and looking at all these UFO stories and finding astronomical, natural, logical explanations for what people were perceiving to be extraordinary or extraterrestrial. And he was bringing everything down to a terrestrial level until finally he just couldn't explain about 10% of the sightings. And the 10% of the sightings he couldn't explain were so compelling, the witnesses themselves were so compelling, that he eventually resigned his position to pursue an investigation and a lot of writing on the entire UFO phenomenon. And I called him up and I read his book and he's the one that shared his title with me, which is why I called the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The movie, as we all know, became a
0: huge success. Hynek himself even made a cameo near the end of the film. These Close Encounter cases would only flourish throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and stories of landings and humanoid creatures would permeate the UFO conversation, so much so that it was hard to keep count. Some rose to the top and became the forefront of the Close Encounter mythos while others remained more obscure, but just as mysterious. So today, we're going to take a look at close encounters of the third kind that you may never have heard of.
1: This is somewhere in the skies with Ryan Spread. On August twenty fifth,
0: nineteen fifty two, at five thirty five AM. In Frontenac, Kansas, William Squires was driving along Yale Road, about a quarter mile from U.S. Highway 160. He was on his way to work at a local radio station, and looking off to the side of the road, he was amazed to see a smooth but sort of weathered-looking metallic cigar-shaped craft hovering a short distance away. It was about 70 feet long, 40 feet wide, and he could see that it was quite unusual, so he stopped his car and approached. At this point, William was about 300 feet away and could now see that this object had a row of large portholes going along the edge. Looking inside, he was amazed to see this pulsating blue light, and at the very front, the silhouette of a man. The man did not appear to be moving, but in the midsection through the portholes, he could see all kinds of movement. At this point, the craft was very low, about 10 feet off the ground, and it was rocking up and down. William was close enough that he could hear a low, throbbing sound, and he could see what appeared to be small propellers on either end of the craft. He watched this propelled craft for about a minute. At one point, he slammed his car door shut, and the object suddenly increased in pitch. It made a louder noise that William described, like a hundred quail taking off. The craft then rose vertically and went up into the clouds and disappeared. William arrived at the local radio station where he worked and told everyone what had happened. Having always been a straight shooter, many he told believed him, and soon the police were called. They went to the area that day, and what they found would intrigue all involved. On the ground, there appeared to be a circle about 60 feet wide of crushed vegetation. Eventually, this incident would gain a lot of attention and even caught the attention of the United States Air Force. They would send several officers from Project Blue Book to investigate. Project Blue Book officers were unable to explain the case. Here is William Squires on a local radio show describing his experience. Last Monday
2: morning, Bill Squires... An employee of radio station KOAM in Pittsburgh, Kansas, reported a very strange experience to authorities. Today, I spoke with him about it long-distance telephone. Here is the story as he told it to me. Radio program at 6.50 uh, every morning with exception to And uh, I always leave my house at 5.30 uh, uh, in order to be able to get out to make out my program.
3: through my right-wing and saw it. And uh, as I went on down, just about
0: On July 21st, 1967, a teenager by the name of Ronnie Hill was in the backyard of his parents' home in Oriental, North Carolina, a tiny little town along the coast. Ronnie was working in the garden around 1 p.m. when he noticed the following.
3: I smelled a strange odor in the air, almost like gasoline. It caused my eyes to water. At the same time, all the animal sounds suddenly stopped, and an eerie silence settled over the area. I looked around, but I didn't see anything unusual, so I, I just kept working. But after about 15 minutes, I heard a buzzing sound and the increasing smell of gas. When I turned my head, I saw a strange thing in the sky. It looked like a black hat. Then my eyes caught a glimpse of something moving. It was a white sphere about uh, nine feet in diameter. It started to fly by itself. And and that's when it truly hit me. This (laughs) was a UFO.
0: (laughs) I couldn't believe it. This is when Ronnie remembered that he had a Kodak camera inside the house. So he quickly ran inside to retrieve it. When he returned outside he searched for the white sphere but couldn't see it until he looked down it was no longer in the air but it landed there was a loud noise as ronnie saw something emerge from behind the
3: sphere it was this little man about three and a half feet tall he had a funnel-shaped
0: black object in his right hand Ronnie quickly snapped a photo of the humanoid, and the white sphere object. This photo can be seen right now on our Instagram, at somewhere skies pod. Ronnie would state the following about the humanoid figure.
3: It wore a skin-tight
0: silver metallic
3: suit with a blue belt around its waist. It had a metallic helmet on. I, I could see its face. Its skin seemed to be a bluish green in color. And it had large, striking eyes.
0: The next thing Ronnie knew, the being took the black funnel object, touched it to the ground for a moment, and then turned around and got back into the white sphere. Seconds later, the object made a loud noise, a blue light came from beneath it, and it began to rise into the air towards the larger black object. It actually went into the black object, which shot off into the clouds and disappeared. Ronnie would run inside once more, but this time to tell his parents about what had just happened. Believing him, they developed this camera film and were stunned to see the image of the being and the object. Ronnie's case would eventually be investigated by none other than John Keel, known primarily for his work on the original Mothman sightings. Keel was impressed with the case and sent the photo off to be analyzed. All analysts who took a look at it agreed that there was no evidence of any type of tampering with the photo or doctoring it. Keel would also interview people around the town about the veracity and credibility of Ronnie and his family. Every last person had nothing but positive things to say about the family, and none found any reason for them to make the story up or hoax the photo. In fact, Ronnie and the family gained nothing by coming forward with this story. And they even asked for complete privacy after the interview with Keel, not wanting to talk about it any longer. Skeptics, however, did want to talk about it, and they would claim that the photo showed something completely different than what was claimed. The craft was nothing more than an egg, and the humanoid was actually a doll wrapped in tin foil. While no hoax was ever proven, and no evidence truly showed a close encounter of the third kind actually occurred, this case remains a mystery in the annals of UFO history. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is free to listen to every week, but if you would like to help support the show, We have a very active Patreon page, where you give what you think the show is worth. In return, you'll get early access to the main show, bonus episodes, and priority to ask our guests your listener questions. Your support truly makes the show continue and grow. So, to learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies.
3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com
0: slash host. The following incident comes from the files of British UFO researchers Jenny Randalls and Paul Wetnell. On January twenty seventh, 1978, four teenagers decided to trespass onto a farmer's property east of the small town of Frocham in England. The teenagers were hunting pheasants alongside a river. While they were waiting in the bushes for pheasants to appear, they saw something else completely. They witnessed a metallic sphere with flashing lights, small portholes, and a round sort of skirt or pan-shaped structure on the bottom. The sphere traveled just above the river's surface. At first, the teens thought that maybe it was some sort of satellite, even though it was very low. It was about 10 feet in diameter. It was making a soft humming and whooshing noise as it left the river and started moving towards them quite close. They could see flames coming out from the bottom as it landed in a field just a short distance away. As they looked closer at the object, they could see a violet light coming from the windows. It was painfully bright. A group of cows were grazing nearby as the craft landed, and instead of retreating, they all became frozen in place. This unsettled the witnesses as well, who were now paralyzed with fear. And then, something could be seen emerging from the object. It was a humanoid figure obscured by the bright violet light from the windows. The teenagers could make out that it wore a one-piece silver suit and a helmet. A light on the helmet emitted the same type of painfully bright violet. They watched as this humanoid walked around the area of the craft. It appeared to be surveying the scene. It then re-entered the craft... Moments later, two figures came out, and they were carrying something quite strange. It was some sort of rectangular, metallic cage. It didn't appear heavy, judging by the way these figures were easily able to maneuver it. The teens watched as the figures walked up to one of the cows and lifted the cage over it. The cow remained completely still. While the cage was over the cow, it did nothing, and it appeared as though these figures were somehow taking measurements of the cow with this cage. Fearing that they might be next to get these measurements, the teenagers fled the scene. But as they did so, they all could feel some sort of force pulling and tugging them back to the area they were able to escape and ran over a bridge off the property and into the town of Froacham, where they would tell several locals about what happened. Believing the teenagers to be making the entire thing up, none of the locals would take them seriously, and no further investigation was ever conducted. On March 22nd, 1982... In the town of Romney, West Virginia, Donald Shulcross had just returned home from working a late shift at the county emergency medical service. It was about 4 a.m. He had just gone inside his house when his dogs and cats were acting up. He thought maybe there was an animal or something in the yard, so he went outside. That's when he noticed the following.
4: I saw this purple light moving across the field thought a plane had crashed, so I yelled at my wife and daughter to call the police. I drove out there to see what had happened, as I drove closer to the light, my engine died. So I grabbed a flashlight and headed out on foot towards the light. At this point, all I could see was light.
0: Donald had his flashlight pointed toward the ground so he could see where he was going. But when he raised the flashlight towards the purple light, he soon realized this was no plane crash.
4: I saw a pair of feet... My light jerked up, and there was a person standing there. I thought maybe it was the pilot who had crawled out from the wreckage of this plane crash, but (laughs) this was no regular pilot.
0: A numb feeling overcame Donald's entire body. He would go on to describe this person.
4: He's about four feet tall, slender. He's wearing a silver suit with silver gloves and boots. His head looked pretty normal, except I couldn't see any ears. His eyes and nose were covered by a visor like on a motorcycle helmet. He held a rod about the length of a baseball bat. I asked, are you okay? Still thinking this was some kind of crash.
0: The man responded to Donald, but
4: not verbally. It was in my mind somehow. He was responding to my questions in my head. I saw things in my mind. The words and images were just
0: there. And this is when the conversation became more interesting.
4: I asked him who he was. I am watchguard, he told me. I asked him where he was from and he said not from here. I asked if he'd ever been here before. Many times he responded.
0: This is when Donald truly realized what was going on. I was talking to an actual alien. The telepathic conversation with this alleged alien would continue.
4: I asked him why he hadn't made themselves known. He told me, we are known. Why are you here? I asked. He told me, there are things everybody needs to know. My people have been watching Earth for some time. We're very concerned about your use of atomic energy and the way you're disposing of atomic waste. It's creating problems you are not yet aware of, but will. Atomic energy should be used for power, not for destructive purposes or dominating purposes. I asked him why he was telling me this. I wasn't the right person to talk to. How do you expect me to fix these problems? He said, I will tell you how.
0: At this moment, Donald found himself floating along with this being towards the craft. And this obviously caused him quite a bit of fear.
4: I was shaking so hard I thought I was going to vomit. I was three or four feet away from this man's craft. It was like a, a cereal bowl with another bowl turned upside on top of it linked by a tube that wrapped around the entire craft. It made no noise whatsoever.
0: A door then opened in the craft. A purple light spilled out. This is when Donald completely lost his composure. I began
4: kicking and screaming that I did not want to go with him.
0: This is when the being moved towards the craft. A ramp came down from the door, and the being began to float up the ramp. Donald, still floating, then hit the ground as if dropped. He watched as the door to the craft closed, and the craft itself began to rise into the sky, darting off and disappearing out of sight. Donald, disoriented and amazed at this point, walked back to his car. By the time he made it there, he was surprised to see that the police and a local rescue squad waited there for him. To the best of his abilities, he began to explain what had happened. Soon, they all headed to the spot where the craft had been hovering. There was no sign that anything had been there. Donald would learn from the police that at least three different people had called the station that night reporting strange lights or what they thought was a plane crash in the area. But the police had declined to investigate these reports. Donald woke up the following morning to find that his skin was now sunburned somehow. And over the next few days, it actually blistered and peeled. His eyes also became sore and red. This case caused quite a buzz, and soon UFO researcher Gray Barker conducted his own investigation. After interviewing Donald for over four hours, he was convinced that he was telling the truth. So much so that Donald also agreed to take a lie detector test. He passed with flying colors. In March of 2001, in Brazil... Vinicius de Salva and Marta Rosenthal were returning home from a day of fishing along the Tocantins River. While driving, they felt a bump in one of the tires of the car. They pulled over, and Venetius got out to inspect the tires. However, he couldn't find anything wrong. Suddenly, Marta began screaming and pointing to the right. There, only a few feet away, hovering over the river, was a metallic object. It had small windows along the edge, and on the edge stood a humanoid figure about four feet tall. In its hand, it held a hose, which reached all the way to the water. As far as the witnesses could tell, this figure was using the hose to extract the water from the river and into the craft. Vinicius and Marta watched this for about two minutes at which point the humanoid pulled up the hose-like device from the river and re-entered the craft. It then became very bright and shot away horizontally and upwards into the sky and disappeared. One evening in 2011, in the Akukahe Desert in Peru, a university professor, engineer, and paleontologist by the name of Klaus Honegger, was sitting around a campfire with several other scientists and his wife. It was a clear sky when suddenly everyone in the group saw, about a thousand feet away on the top of a small hill, a bright light that was rising up from the ground and into the sky. This light was attached to an object about 300 feet in length. The light and object remained stationary above the hill, The group watched in awe as several smaller lights, or orbs, began to exit this larger object. There were about 14 of these smaller, glowing orbs, which began to fly all around in different directions at very high speeds. Suddenly, one of these small orbs approached to within 150 feet of the group. It then descended very close to them, actually lighting up the entire desert floor. It was as if it was searching for something. After a few moments, the spheres began to return to the larger object, coming from all directions and re entering into it. At this point, the larger object then descended behind the hill, disappearing from sight. But this event was far from over. Klaus noticed something in the distance. He left the group and headed towards what he could make out as two figures. When he got closer, he noticed that these weren't typical human beings. These beings were very tall. They had long, rounded heads that ended with a point. They were thin, with very long arms that reached almost to their knees. As Kloss looked at them, a conversation ensued telepathically. He asked them where they were from. They told him that they were from Earth and had been living amongst us for thousands of years. They went on to say that they were even here before humans had arrived. They then told Kloss not to be afraid, and that they were not going to hurt him. They would go on to say that they were concerned that humans were destroying the planet. Kloss's wife suddenly appeared. And when she saw the beings, she immediately had a nervous breakdown. This is when the beings turned around and left. Moments later, the craft from behind the hill came up, shot into the sky, and quickly disappeared from sight. Klaus managed to take a photo of the craft, which you can now view right on our Instagram page, at Pod. Klaus initially kept this event secret along with his wife, but he would eventually come forward to speak about it. He would even become a fierce environmentalist and attributed it primarily to the close encounter he had in the Okokahe Desert. Whether these close encounter of the third kind cases are to be believed or discounted, They have undeniably weaved their way into the tapestry of the ever-enigmatic UFO mythos. They challenge the very fabric of our reality, and they truly make us think, what if? This episode was co-researched and co-written by Preston Dennett. To learn more, visit the link in the show notes. Special thanks to our voiceover talents, Nicholas Westmeyer and Brent Hand. You can learn more about their work in the show notes as well. Please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Summer in the Skies. It helps us tremendously in boosting our visibility. We're on Twitter at Summer Skies and Instagram at Summer Skies Pod. Thank you. For listening, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies.
1: Somewhere in the skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One podcast network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more, and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices.